Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. I have no idea how to tell this story. I don't even know how to start it. This is the story of my senior year of high school and how it destroyed my life. Your father and I want to talk to you about something sad. Rachel Kushner has been diagnosed with leukemia. That sucks. You might be someone who could make Rachel feel better. I don't need your stupid pity. I'm not here because I pity you. I'm actually here because my mom is making me. <laughs> it's actually worse. So if this was a touching romantic story, our eyes would meet and suddenly we would be furiously making out with the fire of a thousand suns. But this isn't a touching romantic story. Anyway. Yep. It's a stunning Saturday afternoon, and where did we spend the earlier part of the day? <laughs> I insisted that we head out to see Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which uh, won the Sundance Film Festival. And not only did it win, but... And it won both prizes at Sundance, the Grand Jury and the and, Audience Award. Okay, there How you often go. does that happen? Okay, but maybe more importantly to some people, it also garnered $12 million uh, for the distribution rights, which is the highest any movie ever in Sundance history has garnered. There, you know, it ended to a standing, standing, standing ovation. So I thought for sure on this stunning July day, <laughs> off as, we should go. Yes, as everyone else was heading to the beach. We went there. We were the only yes, ones in the theater. The so it was ones. a private screening. And a matinee. Right. Which was fantastic, really. It absolutely because, was. Uh-huh. And I did feel as if we were sort of... Um, Meeting the fault of our stars joins yes. with Juno. Yes. No question about and it. And I'm also going to toss in 500 Days of Summer and The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I okay. think they all belong to the same genre. Okay, I don't even know those two movies. Are oh, you they need movies? to. Yes, yeah. you need to okay. watch them. They sound but, like poems, but go ahead. <laughs> but this was brought out by the same company who gave us Juno and 500 Days of Summer. It, well, so. you know, Juno, you see Juno in it everywhere. You definitely do. So Juno's definitely in it. But also, it was directed by um, Alfonso Gomez Rejon. Yes. And... He is a Scorsese. Uh, Scorsese mentored him. He worked on Scorsese films. And it's so funny because this is so not Scorsese. So not Scorsese. So he started out as the personal assistant to Scorsese. Yes. And who else? Who we did a podcast on. Who else? Nora Ephron. Oh. Yes. And so he worked the second unit for Nora Ephron, Scorsese, some great, great, great filmmakers. Well, you know, regardless of what we're going to say next, I don't really know what you think. We never discuss movies until we get on to Even the podcast. Even when we're the only two people in the theater. <laughs> right, we, we never still discuss don't discuss them. them, yes. Look, you know, it was... This movie is made brilliant by the writing. The script is, yes. is by far and away the best part of it, but also so many brilliant nuances. And one of them that I'll share with you is that this young man um, and his friend, mm -hmm. uh, Earl... And, and the guy is Greg. He's the me in the right. title. What was I thinking? I'm so tired of you treating this girl like she a burden. Because somebody actually cares about you, her life is over after this. Earl is played by R.J. Seiler, mm -hmm. and this is his first film. Well done. Well, you well know, done. A kudos to him for sure. But anyway, they themselves have taken movies and they've re-shot them after they've seen them. Movies so they're the, characters in the movie. Exactly. Yes. Uh -huh. And they re-shot them, 42 of them or something, some in and the 40s. Such a hilarious touch. Oh my God, the and names of these movies. Do you remember any of them? Um, okay, my favorite was 2.48 p.m. Cowboy. <laughs> a spoof, of course, on Midnight Cowboy. Right. They were 2.48 Beautifully, PM. beautifully done. Or My Dinner with Andre the Giant. <laughs> A great name. And I can see how that part of the movie really appealed to the crowd at Sundance. There were sections of this movie that mm -hmm. made it 
that made it rise above it, you know, or the fault of our stars or everything else. But whenever you have teenagers where one of them is going to die and it's obvious that they're going to die, although maybe she doesn't die because we're not going to tell you because he promises she doesn't. But whenever you have that kind of, uh, of thing going on, mm-hmm. there's always a sense of, oh, really, you know, it's a little exhausting to be in there. But the acting is very, very good. And, and the young woman who plays um, the dying girl. Olivia Cook, Right, did, who plays Rachel. Did you know she's British? I didn't know she's British, but she is mesmerizing she's to look mesmerizing. at. And oh, I was my thinking, God. She, stunning. You know I always have to think of, you know, who these people really look like. She looked like a mix between Kira Knightley and Christina Ricci. With those big round eyes. Well, I saw Ricci in her for sure, Uh you know, and you could see that, you know, but there's something about her and one major dimple that, you know, is deeper than the Grand Canyon, for God's Uh sake. She's amazing, amazing, amazingly. But she doesn't have a big role. She doesn't. interesting, a very little role. And it's one of these parts, which is such a challenge for actors because she's not allowed to be very mobile. A lot of the movies, she's in her hospital bed or at home, so she's not allowed to move Well, she also doesn't have a lot of dialogue. She does she doesn't. Not, but boy, did she pull off that she part. She pulled it off. And mm-hmm. she did, in fact, you'll, you're going to wonder when you see it. And, you know, of course, anybody who goes through chemo loses their hair. Mm-hmm. And she did, in fact, shave her head for the performance. Oh, so, wow. um, a little remember trivia. Remember when Sigourney Weaver was first given a million dollars to shave her head for aliens? No, I don't remember. Yeah. We should also give a shout out to Thomas Mann, who <sighs> plays Greg. And you know I used to live in Germany, so I can't look at his name and not want to say Thomas Mann, the famous <laughs> author. They spell it exactly the same way. But Thomas Mann was terrific. Yes, Greg. The three of them were he just was. fantastic. No, but they use a technique that you will, you know. Now you have a much richer history in film than I do. And, I don't you know, know about well, that. Well, you've, you know, you've directed, and together you and I are kind of like Greg and Earl. <laughs> okay, there you go. Okay, <laughs> I, which one? I want to be Earl. I want to be Earl instead of a friend. Okay. I know you're the one with all the good lines <laughs> and the true heart. Yes. Okay, but um, you know, they use voiceover. Let me tell you a story, and mm-hmm. you've often suggested that sometimes that as a technique is a little bit lazy and that you can tell a story without having to show the story. And did you feel that way in this film? You know, I was debating as I was watching it. I enjoyed it. I was debating whether it was necessary, but I'm wondering if it's because it was adapted from the novel. And you mentioned the fantastic Written by, by the way, written by, by Jesse the novel Andrews. and the screenplay. Yes, it was yeah. Jesse Andrews' first novel, and he adapted it into a screenplay. And you know how you like to point out every now and then that I, I did go to Harvard, and I just want to say that Jesse and I share the same alma mater. He is a Harvard guy, graduated in 2004, and me and Earl and the Dying Girl was his first novel. He did a fantastic job with the screenplay. So there were several devices that made it quirky, which I thought was um, a good tone since it was dealing with such serious subject matters like death and dying and, you know, the first time this experience befalls um, a teenager coming across how to deal with all that. So there was animation or claymation, which I thought was hilarious. And the animation is layered Mm -hmm. in brilliantly and the timing is impeccable in it Mm -hmm. and it's beautifully drawn who i don't know who did the animation it was in the credits so i'm sure we can find it but it was that um the chapter headings the animation the voiceover all together they worked for me in a literary kind of way where this was reminiscent of catcher in the rye where you have a male teenager telling you this story and you know it's the same way the book starts he's looking back telling he's looking back telling the story but even as he's trying to come up with the first sentence of his story he's cognizant of it being a story being told to us so the same way in the book and i thought this was interesting thomas mann and rj seiler they actually read the audiobook along with others 
Um, did you read, did you listen to the book? Not yet. I've got it on hold. Um, and you know, I could read it old school. Um, but even in the book and in the movie, they both begin the same way with this character trying to think of the first sentence of how to tell the story properly. It was the best of times. <laughs> Worst of times. It's so much harder than I thought it would be. It was life. to Dickens, thinking, how do I start this story? So to answer your question, I think those chapter subheadings, they did work for me because it was very Holden Caulfield-esque. It was, me. but you know what's so funny is when you talk to writers, um, the first and last line is never hard, at least for me. And I'm a writer. I like to say that I'm a writer and I've had some minor success, but um, the first and last lines are never hard for me. It's, it's the, the middle. middle. Yeah, exactly. The great Death um, Valley. Yeah. Now, what, now, the chapters, do you remember mm. we podcast uh, earlier this year about another film that used chapters? Yes. Do you um, remember? The second best exotic exactly. marigold hotel. And you mm. liked it then, yeah. and I did not, and uh -huh. I didn't like it in this, and did you? Well, again, I don't think it was necessary, yeah, but I didn't it added it. to the quirk factor. How did it add to you know? it? I, well, again, that reminded me of 500 Days of Summer, where 500 Days of Summer was brilliantly told out of order, where you didn't go from day one to day 500. But here, it's the same way, a little bit like Bridget Jones's diary, where they number certain aspects, so he numbers the days of their doomed friendship. Well, but Brid Bridget's Stone's diary was also, it was a diary. So exactly. obviously, so the dates mm -hmm. made sense, because if you look at the title of it, it totally made sense. Right. I just thought it was another, they had a lot of layers in here, and I mm -hmm. thought it was another layer that wasn't necessary. You know, it wasn't necessary, but that goes to show how strong the underlying levels were. Yeah. That it all worked. The yeah. visuals worked, the soundtrack worked, the... Um, well, I was... That was the, if they had taken that out, I think it would have worked even better. I well, do. it's interesting to me because I kept thinking of this in terms of a gendered critique. And like with 500 Days of Summer, which was written by a guy who, again, kudos to that screenwriter, he used to read the slush pile. So he used to read about 10 to 12 screenplays a day, probably, for months and months and months before he wrote his first one. And that seemed very fresh because it was a romantic comedy told from the point of view of a guy. Uh -huh. And I'm wondering if some of these devices would not have seemed as fresh if the protagonist had been a woman versus well, a guy. Well, interestingly enough, I think the reason she didn't have great dialogue is I don't think Jesse uh, is there yet. I don't think he, you know, uh -huh. we've talked, we talk about this a lot. I mm -hmm. especially feel very strongly that not everybody can write for both genders. And I think Jesse's smart enough to know that he really couldn't. So he didn't, you know, uh -huh. he only really writes except for his mother. The opening scene between Greg and his mother mm -hmm. is not to be missed because it's that voice that you can't get out of your head that even if she's not speaking, she's yes. still speaking. Yes. It is hysterically mm. funny, poignant, and so real. I love uh -huh. Connie Britton. I hope someday she will come on our show. I just think... She does no wrong. She and is great. From completely different parts. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you take her in Friday Night Lights versus Nashville versus me and Earl and the Dying Girl, they're all very different parts. Her physicality, even when she was not talking, and she's telling him he really should go visit this girl who's been <laughs> diagnosed with leukemia. And then when she steps back into the room from behind the wall and she's back right in his eye. Well, no, she line, goes down brilliant. a hallway. He's trying to get away from her. So and he goes he from the dining room to the kitchen mm -hmm. and she's following in the hallway. And there she is again in his face, yes. you know. It Wonderfully was great. done. Now, what did you think of Nick Offerman, who played the quirky, quirky father? 
Um, I, 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 it was a little much, you it know, was a little I just much. didn't I'm feel like it made why sense. They yeah. thought he had to be that over the top. I, you know, I think that was the Juno part where every mm. character has to be quirky in some way. Remember in Juno, her, her stepmother was quirky and yep. she was constantly doing crafty bitches.com things, you know, <laughs> it was like a little crazy. Her father was, you know, odd, but you know, I mean, I just feel like somehow that, that sort of came out of it. But I do think that and, Jesse... And Nick Offerman, of course, we should say, we know him from Parks and Recreation. Yes, exactly. And he is Megan Mullally's husband. Okay, well, there yeah. you go. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I do think that Jesse um, Andrews is not comfortable writing for the female gender, except for from a mother. So his mother's voice must have been very big. And that's when you're watching this movie and you're thinking to yourself... Okay, when his mother sees this movie, I'm a right. mother. When a mother sees that movie, is she going, oh, my God, was that me? Am I really like that? Because, again, all writers write, you know, for what they know. Right. And it takes place in his childhood. It's shot in his home. Well, you do wonder how autobiographical the script was. And it's funny because if you go to Jesse Andrews's website, it says he's based in Boston. And then if you Well, click, he went to Harvard, so he might have stayed there. Well, then when you click on contact, he really says he cannot be contacted. He's in a remote fishing village in Chile and I thought okay I wonder if that's really true yeah but, well know. well but they did shoot it in his childhood home in Pittsburgh they did yeah mm-hmm. so there you go which added a lot of atmosphere to the mm-hmm. set to really see the streets of Pittsburgh and you know it was also an interesting plot point that they're all worried about whether or not he's going to go to college and his college admission essay which again is a literary element it's the story of that senior year of high school where it's such a transitional year anyway his description of the cliques in uh-huh. high school is really, really brilliant, I yeah. think. And also being, he, he touts himself as an invisible guy who makes enough comment to not be odd. Mm-hmm. So he'll walk by, but he never really engages with anybody in high school. Right. And um, I thought that the first, the first half of the film is much stronger, I think, than the second half. Both worked for me. I yeah. really teared up in the second half, and it's I interesting. I saw that, by the way. Well, of course you you did. We were the only two people in the <laughs> theater, but um, Alfonso Gomez Rejon, the director, um, he said that the part of Greg really spoke to him, that that's yeah. how he felt in high school, trying to make your way and be authentic, but, you know, um, kind of tiptoe through these cliques that... <laughs> It was very well done, I thought, in terms of making it feel fresh, even though we've seen high school stories so many yeah. times, well, we and have, we all know about well, the jocks. But the, and yeah, the that's what I people. mean, but I think he really got, you know, that most of the high school stuff we see, there's two cliques, the cool people, well, three maybe, the cool kids, the normal kids, and then the odd kids, and this one really showed the nuances of how many... There's so many different, the idea, you know, the gothic. I mean, he just really, really walked it through. And I thought the high school scenes that shows the uh, enormity of the crowds when you're walking through mm-hmm. the hallways in between classes, all those things that I just took, you know, never thought about when I was going through them. But watching them on the screen today, I thought they did a great job. And I think it was a great job of directing. And I think the cinematographer was fabulous. Now, weren't you homecoming queen? Okay, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well, see, this is why your high school experience might have been a little bit different. But I think you can see that um, Gomez Rejon, the director, also directed episodes of Glee. I think he really has that high school environment down in terms of showing it in a fresh and original way. Mm-hmm. But the other reason that the script really spoke to Alfonso Gomez Rejon is he said that he had recently lost his dad. And I'm sure you remember at the very end of the movie, he dedicates it to his father. And he said at Sundance that was so emotional, not just because it got such a good reception there but it was the first time he'd publicly recognized his father on the screen in that way 
And so he said he could really, he had great affinity for Greg, that Greg is dealing with death and loss. And well, and the, and the teacher inside talks about the loss of his father at the mm-hmm. age of 15. And yeah. I thought that was really beautifully done too. It wasn't done in this sobby kind of gross way. It was really done in this sort of, I'm looking back now and seeing it a little bit different way. And I, you know, we are not plot mm-hmm. spoilers here. We don't like to do that, but we, I do have to tell the story. <laughs> It is so funny when these two guys are eating cookies <laughs> that they bought from the pothead in high school, and then they go and the, eat some of the teacher's soup that the teacher told them not to eat, and then they get totally stoned, which is one of the very oh. funny, beautifully directed scenes. I mean, mm-hmm. unbelievably great. Yeah. And I did want to ask, did they get stoned for the scene? Because they sure look at, you know. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I saw an interview with the director, and he said that there were certain limitations they had to put on the script because the budget just wasn't there. Yeah. Well, it's a low-budget film, isn't it? It's a low-budget yeah. film. and um, Which just goes to show you, by the yeah, way, sometimes when, more is just more. You don't need a lot of money to make a great movie. Is in the right spot. That's yeah. exactly right. And I believe it was that scene that they had to rewrite because of budgetary restrictions. And so it was wonderfully done where you have the close-up on both of their eyeballs. <laughs> and wonderfully done, and it really, really worked. Really did. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad they didn't have a bigger budget. And even the way the teacher exposed the whole... I mean, it mm-hmm. is really one of, the, one of the all-time great scenes that you could pull out and show it over and over again. It's just hysterically funny. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's hysterically funny. Now, do you know what other movie... Um, which went on to win the Oscar that Gomez Rijon did the, he directed the second unit for. It's a recent movie. No. Argo. Oh. Yeah. Huh. He's got I, a lot which of is, promise. As you know, is not a favorite of mine. Um, I, I don't it, think that's a claim to fame. I think he I needs to I thought it maintained re- a lot of tension. Now, yeah. the other thing that he says every single day, people stop him on the streets. Everyone remarks on how much he looks like Javier Bardem, hmm. which I think is a great look. And he was doing the, um, he was directing the second unit on a movie where Javier Bardem was the star. And he actually met him and Javier Bardem looked at him and goes, it's true. We both have the same cow eyes. And I thought it was funny because Nick Offerman and Earl, I think they also have very mesmerizing, humongous oh gosh, eyes. Yeah. They don't even need dialogue. <clears throat> but both of them are, you know, relatively new to the screen, but mm-hmm. they own it. They own that screen. You know, some people yeah. own it when they're on it and some people don't. Now, do you know who else was uh, up for the part of Rachel? For the part of Rachel? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't know any 17-year-olds. Emma Roberts. Okay, so she's got to be related to she's Julia Julia's Roberts. niece. Yeah, she's been in a couple wow. of, of sort of, uh, she's had starring roles in minor films. I would put it that way. Now, is but she Eric not, Roberts's daughter? I believe she is, oh, yes. Okay. But she's not strong, and I don't think she could have pulled it off. I don't think she's a great actor yet. Maybe she will be, but um, but anyway, I think Olivia Cook deserved the role, and I she think she nailed it. She was terrific, and I would not have known she was not American. That's how good her accent yeah. was. Well, she didn't have that many lines. But still, you I know, know I, I wish I'd started counting tell. them at the beginning. Like if I went back and saw it again, I would mm-hmm. count her lines. There's so there's so few that I, I I think it was maybe a little bit of a weakness in the film that she didn't say a little more. Now, um, how did you feel about Molly Shannon, who played her mother in the film? The single I thought mother? that there was no need to make her mother sexually inappropriate. She with was him. creepy. Yeah, creepy. and you know what? And I and she only did it really once. Mm, but that was and one think, time I too think many. He was trying to show how needy she was and how uh-huh. needy she would be once her daughter was gone. But I didn't yeah. like it, and I didn't feel like that would have really been her no. daughter. And I don't they think they had nothing yeah. in common. I, I didn't. I did not think that worked. I thought it was an uncomfortable mm-hmm. moment that didn't need to be there. Yeah. yeah, it was like Nick Offerman's part and Molly Shannon's part were both. 
both too. And maybe even the history teacher with his tattoos on the neck. But, and... You know, the details around this mm-hmm. film. Yeah. Earl's house, you know, not far away, but on the other side of the tracks, his Earl's brother's mm-hmm. dog. Apparently fabulous. on a street with only two houses. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Earl's brother's dog, which who was fat, you know, like not, you uh-huh. know, scary, scary, scary. I mean, there were some great, and the, and the cat at the beginning, yeah. there were some great moments uh, in the details around the plots mm-hmm. really helped to keep those plots held together. And I think what's also interesting is he never kisses her. And No, and yet that was a very funny twist when he said, if this had been a romantic comedy, exactly. this is when we would have breathed a thousand fires. Yep. And But it's not, so, you right. know. But it's true. Connie Britton, Earl, and the dying girl were the ones who, through attribution, gave Greg soul and heart. Um, but without them, he would have seemed yeah. very um, inaccessible, you know. Well, he was inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Jesse, I hope you're, we, we hope you've learned accessibility <gasps> by now. It's a great watch, for sure. And... Um, and it's and it's not your typical the fault of our stars or your typical Juno. It's got a lot more depth and and also unique possibilities in the plot. The plot is not as uh, as obvious as one thinks it is at the beginning. So congratulations to everybody who's surrounding it. We can't wait to see what you do next. <laughs>